Karen Levy is an author, a faculty member in the Department of Information Science at Cornell University, and associated faculty at Cornell Law School. With those credentials, you might not expect to find her hanging out at truck stops. She did just that when she was researching her book, Data Driven, Truckers, Technology, and the New Workplace Surveillance. Back in 1980, trucking was still a regulated industry. The federal government set rates in the industry. It was much more heavily unionized. And truckers made about $110,000 a year in today's dollars, so a pretty decent living. Um, truckers today make about $47,000 a year. So, you know, half, basically, of what they made 40 years ago. Um, and so, you know, when you create these conditions, you end up in a position where people are gonna end up breaking the law to keep the lights on at home. So, you know, if we think that that's a problem, right, that federal government doesn't really want people breaking the law as much as they are. So they suggested uh, a proposed rule, they proposed a rule in the Department of Transportation mandating what are called electronic logging devices, right, that Wendy alluded to. And what these are, are basically devices that are hardwired into the truck cab that keep track of how much truckers are driving. And so the idea is meant to be that it kind of, it's a little digital tattletale, right? It tells the government, right, like what the trucker goes through a, a way station or is inspected. Um, it keeps a record of whether or not that trucker has exceeded his allowable hours. And this is now required of all truckers in the United States. It's been required for about five years. Um, and what my research has kind of focused on is the evolution of this rule of this technology and really trying to understand how the life of trucking and the day-to-day -day work of trucking looks different when truckers are being monitored this way versus before when they were just kind of keeping track of their time using pencil and paper. Hey everybody, welcome to the latest episode of the Plutopia News Network podcast. I'm John Lebkowski and my colleagues and partners in crime are Scoop Sweeney and Wendy Grossman. And we're all here today to interview Karen Levy, who is an associate professor in the Department of Information Science at Cornell University. She's an associate member of the faculty at Cornell Law School and field faculty in sociology, science and technology studies, media studies and data science. Wow, that's a lot. I don't know how you can get all that done. She researches. She researches the legal, organizational, social, and ethical aspects of data-intensive technologies, which is what happens when we use digital technologies to enforce rules and make decisions about people, particularly in contexts that are marked by conditions of inequality. And much of her research uh, considers the impact of data-intensive technologies on work and workers, and her book, Data Driven, is specifically about the impact of technology on truckers, which I thought was pretty fascinating. So welcome, Karen. Thanks. It's nice to join you all. Yeah, glad to have you here. We've been looking forward to this discussion. Me too. I Actually, just wonder, oh, do you want to start, Wendy? Go ahead. I was I was just going to say I think Karen and I originally met at the We Robot conference, which is just just been this year, and um, you know I was intrigued from the beginning by the the research she was doing on the impact of bringing electronic logging devices into truckers' cabs, uh, and the way it was changing the profession. Uh, so, um, but I interrupted you. 
Well, I would, my first question was going to be why truckers are subject to this kind of surveillance, what, how it started, why it escalated, or has it escalated? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to, to get into that. Um, so long-haul truckers, the, when I, the talk, truckers I'm talking about are long-haul truckers. So these are the folks who are driving over the road, as they call it, right, hundreds of miles away from their homes for days or weeks at a time. These are not your delivery drivers, your FedEx driver. There's a lot of interesting stuff to be said about how technology is affecting those folks too, but my focus is on, on the long haul industry. Um, and I got really interested in kind of how that industry was changing in the face of digital, uh, digital surveillance, digital regulation. And so uh, way back when in 2011, um, I started studying truckers one of the biggest issues in the trucking industry is um, that truckers are overtired, right? So truckers are capped in the number of hours they can work every day and every week. There are federal regulations about this, but it's kind of an open secret that truckers very often exceed those regulations. And they do that not because it's really fun to break the law, but because we put them in an economic position where they have to. Um, so there's a lot that we can say about it, but I'll, I'll say only a couple things. One is that um, truckers in the United States are paid by the mile that they drive. So it's, they have a little saying, if the wheel ain't turning, you ain't earning. And so they get a certain number of cents per mile, right? So their incentives are, of course, to just drive as much as they can, whether or not they're too tired or the weather is not good or whatever it is. Like, that's the way we've chosen to structure the industry to incentivize them. And then there's also, of course, a lot of pressure put on them by the companies they work for, by consumers, right? We all want our Amazon packages in two days. Right, so those pressures have become really intense. Um, at the same time, truckers' wages have declined quite a bit. So, you know, back in 1980, trucking was still a regulated industry. The federal government set rates in the industry. It was much more heavily unionized. And truckers made about $110,000 a year in today's dollars. So a pretty decent living. Um, truckers today make about $47,000 a year. So, you know, half basically of what they made 40 years ago. Um, and so, you know, when you create these conditions, you end up in a position where people are going to end up breaking the law to keep the lights on at home. So, you know, if we think that that's a problem, right, the federal government doesn't really want people breaking the law as much as they are. So they suggested uh, a proposed rule. They proposed a rule in the Department of Transportation mandating what are called electronic logging devices, right, that Wendy alluded to. And what these are are basically devices that are hardwired into the truck cab that keep track of how much truckers are driving. And so the idea is meant to be that it kind of, it's a little digital tattletale, right? It tells the government, right? Like what the trucker goes through a, a way station or is inspected. Um, it keeps a record of whether or not that trucker has exceeded his allowable hours. And this is now required of all truckers in the United States. It's been required for about five years. Um, and what my research has kind of focused on is the evolution of this rule of this technology and really trying to understand how the life of trucking and the day-to-day -day work of trucking looks different when truckers are being monitored this way versus before when they were just kind of keeping track of their time using pencil and paper. So that's kind of the centerpiece of, of the book. The thing I found particularly interesting was the ways that actually the, that in, in your book where you, where you interview truckers and you follow them into their cabs and you talk to their managers and you talk to lots of different people who are in different sides of the industry. I found it really fascinating that the electronic logging devices, in fact, in some ways are making things less safe, partly because of knock-on effects and partly because of the difficulties of auditing them. And the, the fact that the, each one has a different interface just... <laughs> 
and the yeah, interface yeah. is not well designed. It's just like, oh my God, that is dumb. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that. So, so some of the, the book, you know, I've been, so I mentioned I've been researching this issue since 2011. That was when I started the, the project. And at the time, and in the few years after that, it was a little bit of the Wild West in terms of what the interfaces looked like and how much information they gave you about, you know, how much driving time you had left. And that ends up really mattering, especially for enforcement. So there's one chapter of the book where um, I hang out with commercial vehicle inspectors, law enforcement officers who are in charge of inspecting truckers. And one of the things that I noticed was how difficult they found it, right, to like interface with this technology because the technologies were all different. That has been resolved, right? That if you look at electronic logging devices now, like they're much more standard, right? It was kind of in this moment of transition. But I, I want to come back to another point you made, Wendy, is really, I think is really apt, which is that, you know, ostensibly, this is a safety technology, right? If you look at all the justifications that the government gave or that, you know, trucking companies gave about why we need digital surveillance in the truck cab, it all came down to like, well, you know, 4,000 people a year die in truck-related accidents. Fatigue is a huge, and this is true, right? Fatigue is a huge cause of fatal accidents. We don't want people, like nobody wants the roads to be unsafe. Um, so therefore, like we'll just kind of watch people more and try and make sure that they're not violating the rules. Um, now, as you pointed out, if, if we look at actually the crash statistics, you know, emerging after the mandate of this surveillance technology, it has not been effective. In fact, it's been maybe counter effective. Um, the crash rates have gone up. They hit a 30 year high um, in certain segments of the industry after the mandate happened. And I think there are kind of two reasons why that might have happened. One is that, you know, if, I don't know how many truck drivers you, you all know or have talked to. But truck drivers are a really interesting breed of folks, right? A lot of the folks who drive in the industry have been doing it for years or decades. They really know what they're doing. They're really professional. They have, take a lot of pride in the work that they do. Um, they're a little bit older, right? So the median age of truckers in the U.S. is in like, it's like the late, late 40s. I want to say 48 or 49. Um, these are folks who are experts, right? Like those are the truckers you want to be next to on the highway. And those are the very, very same folks who say, you're going to put what in my cab now? Like, I'm not going to do that, right? What, what one effect of this rule has been to drive out the safest, most professional drivers and to substitute into their place 18-year-olds, right? Or 21-year-olds who have just gotten their commercial driver's license, who abide more surveillance because they didn't know it any other way, right? That's just what work looks like now for a lot of folks without college education. Um, so that's one thing is there's kind of this cohort substitution effect where you're substituting in less safe drivers. And then the other piece of it is that, you know, rules are interesting things. And this is actually where I started the project. We kind of have this tendency to say like, well, if there's a rule, we want it enforced, right? But like in practice, we can think easily of lots of rules that we don't actually want enforced all that consistently, right? Or that would really impede social life if we enforce them super consistently. And trucking is a really good example of a place where, you know, you can make rules about how many hours a day somebody can drive. But, you know, you all have been on the highway before, sometimes you know, a trip takes longer than you think it's going to, or you hit traffic or you're in bad weather or whatever. There's not a place to park at the place where you want to pull over. There's all kinds of contingencies that you deal with. And truckers, of course, deal with this all day, every day. And so when you remove some of the flexibility from the time clock that they have so that it's now like you have 11 hours to get from A to B and no more, right? And if you exceed that, you're in violation. They're going to drive much faster, right? They're going to drive much less safely because you've removed the flexibility that was kind of inherent in that in that rule before. And so I think that's something that we maybe should be more attentive to when we enforce rules using digital technology, 
is that like sometimes wiggle room is like not entirely a bad thing. We sometimes don't act like like it means something in society, but it often does. Over the years, I came to know a lot of truckers from various jobs that I had. And there was a problem that seemed uh, epidemic among them. And that was abuse of things like methamphetamine and uh, similar drugs. And has that uh, been imp- that problem been helped or done away with by all this tracking, or is it still uh, endemic in that industry, which it seemed to be when I got to know a lot of truckers? Yeah, that is, that's interesting. I didn't realize you knew a lot of truckers too. Um, you're right that truckers have, you know, had a long history of often abusing different stimulants in in large part because like they had to stay awake under really inhospitable conditions. Right. And so you would rely on whatever you needed to rely on in order to do that. Um, There's a bunch of, you know, there's, I I document a lot of the kind of the engagement between truckers and substances in my book. You know, I didn't personally talk to a lot of truckers who talked to me about methamphetamine use, but certainly, you know, even just like legal over the counter stimulants, like five hour energy or other energy drinks, those are super, super highly used in the industry. Um, You know, I like where I sort of come down on your question is, I don't think it's a good thing to be clear that truckers are driven to sometimes like treat their bodies like hell, right, in order to get their work done. Like, that's not a good thing. I'm not defending that. I don't necessarily want to be on the highway next to somebody who's been awake for 27 hours. But the issue is, in my view, the way we've chosen to address that is by sort of treating the symptoms of the problem rather than treating the problem, right? Nobody should be in a position where in order to make a living and keep their kids fed, they're required to like go past the length that their body should go to, right? But that's what we incentivize people to do based on the way that truckers are are paid and the way we've organized the industry. Truckers are exempt from the Fair Labor Standards Act in the United States, right? Which is the law that gives many workers overtime protections and other workplace protections. And truckers don't get those protections, right? So they're not paid for big parts of their day that they're working, right? Like time that they're loading and unloading freight, time that they're stuck in traffic, right? Since they're paid by the mile, you get nothing if you're stuck in traffic. Time that you're in, you know, inspecting your truck, time that you're taking breaks that you're legally mandated to take, all that stuff is just 100% unpaid for truckers. So then it's like not shocking that they're really tired, right? Because like we've created conditions where that happens. And so what I make, the argument I make in the book is that the surveillance is basically solving the wrong problem, right? Like these are economic and political problems. They're not tech problems, right? The solution is not to just police them harder. I, I found myself thinking about that song, Willing, you know, give me weeds, whites, and wine and show me a sign and I'll be willing to be <laughs> I moving. To say, I don't know that one. I feel like I oh, know. It's no Little Feet song. Did, yeah, did little Linda feet. Ronstadt record that too? Yeah, Linda Ronstadt recorded, uh, and it was a Little Feet song. It was by Lowell George, and it's about long-haul trucking. Oh, my and, gosh, I'll have to put uh, this one on my list. It says, I've been from Tucson to Tucumcari to Hatchapi to Tonopah. I've driven every kind of rig that's ever been made, driven the back roads so I wouldn't get weighed. You know? I really? Mean, it, oh, I love it. It's really it's really a good song. You ought to. That can I be should have that. I have song. to say, I, like. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, John. Well, I was just going to say, when they when they make a film from your book, that can be the theme song. <laughs> that would be great. Actually, say, you know, selfishly, one of the things I've really enjoyed about studying truckers, there's a lot that I've enjoyed about getting to know the trucking community, but the music is definitely one of the highlights. You know, like I have a great trucking playlist and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of songs, as you mentioned, that actually make allusions to 
substance abuse or to, like you said, to dodging the scales, right? To taking routes that like get them around law enforcement. So you see this stuff kind of manifest in just the culture of the industry too. I was trying to imagine you just kind of walking into truck stops yeah. and, and meeting people. I mean, or, was it easy to meet the guys? Were they easy to go oh, along easy. with? It was, <laughs> it was really great. I mean, you know, one thing that kind of made this project very simple. Well, one thing is just that there's almost 2 million long haul truckers, right? So there was no shortage of people to talk to. And of course I talked to lots of people who weren't truckers too, but were kind of adjacent to the industry, but truckers were my core population. And you can find truckers everywhere, right? Like they're literally everywhere. So that it was very easy to access folks. And a lot of truckers, I think are, you know, we talk about essential workers a lot in this country and how much we, how important it is that you know, people do work on which the economy depends, but truckers don't have a great public reputation, right? Like most people don't think about them at all. And if they do think about them, they think about them negatively. They think like, well, I don't want a truck stop in my town or I don't want to pass this big, you know, 18 wheeler on the highway. But if you stop and talk to folks, I had, I found people so generous. They were so willing to talk to me about the work that they did, about what had changed in the industry over the last 20 years. It was, I found it very, very easy. I mean, I, I can talk more if, you, if you're interested about kind of some of the strategies I used, because one of the things I wanted to do was not waste their time, right? Because time is so important to them. So I talked to a lot of folks actually like in the bars at truck stops, because that's where they go, you know, when they can't, when their clock is done for the day, they might go to the bar and get a beer. And so I talked to a lot of folks there. I went to a bunch of different trucking firms and like talked to the managers and the dispatchers and the safety folks and the truckers there. Um, I went to some truck shows. Truck shows are really fun if you ever get a chance to go to them. They're just like big expos where, you know, thousands of truckers come and there's music and all kinds of stuff. And it was great. I mean, it was a really, really fun community to get to know. Um, one of the, you know, you said that uh, truckers don't, which is similar to a lot of other industries. I gather that flight attendants don't get start getting paid until the door, door is shut on the plane. Um, yeah. you, you talked about they don't get paid for a lot of the parts of their day. My impression is that the amount of time that those that like moving trucks around in a yard and unloading and loading that those all take more time than they used to. Do you have a feel like how many miles a, a year did a trucker used to drive compared to now, for example? That's a really good question. I don't know if I have that stat. There are stats that I, they're in the book, so I don't have them in front of me about how much money is lost, like how much is basically lost in wages to truckers, you know, time when they're working, but not being paid for working. And I can't, I don't have it off the top of my head, but it's I, like. I have a personal reason for asking, which is that yeah. in the late seventies, I was working as a full-time solo folk singer and I drove 50,000 miles a year. And I've always wanted to know how much wow. of a trucker's, of a trucker's uh, life that was because you know, when the trucker got off for the day, he sat down and had a beer. I went to work. <laughs> the driving was, honorary to trucker for the sure driving was getting to work. <laughs> I've always wondered, like, how it compared, you know? Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that, actually. So my advisor in graduate school, his name's Paul DiMaggio. Um, and one of the ways I kind of got him on board with this project, he's great. I mean, he was wonderful. He didn't need that much convincing. Um, but he had worked before he became a sociologist, he had worked in Nashville as a songwriter and he ended up cleaning up around honky tonks. Like that was the job he was able to get. And he had interviewed a bunch of truckers because he did music journalism and stuff. So when I said I was really interested in truckers, like he, you know, kind of like you had like a connection to the industry kind of based on on the music, right? Like in the 1970s. And, and he made me a playlist and that was I was off and running after that. Um. 
I was telling the guys before you logged in that um, it, early in the pandemic, the uh, health writer, Lori Garrett, was talking on, some, I think, MSNBC or something about uh, the way China was managing things and the passes they had and the way they were being checked and they couldn't go in this building or that building. She said, can you imagine out in the middle of the United States, a trucker with a gun rack being stopped by police, te COVID tested on the spot and then told he has to go into quarantine and leave his truck there? <laughs> and I mean, the personality you associate with that, you yeah. know, uh, and I can't imagine a worse mismatch than that yeah. personality and these these logging devices and all these rules. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, one of the kind of core ironies, I think, of trucking is like you said, right? Like trucking has this kind of cowboy mystique around it. And if you talk to folks about Smokey and the Bandit, Smokey and the Bandit, yeah. cowboy, like all that. And of course, those are movies and they're 40, 50 years old. But like there is still some part of that. That I saw reflected in the folks Smokey I talked to. The Bandit is 40 years old. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, it's isn't it 19 it's 1970s or 19 it's old yeah it's, it's, old. it's no, a long time 80s which makes it 40 years old oh my yep. god yep but you still do see you know certainly like a desire for autonomy so many folks i talked to when i said you know why did you i would always start off with very basic questions like why why did you want to be a truck driver stuff like that and the number of people who told me because i didn't want someone looking over my shoulder right like i there's a lot of, a lot of them had like worked in a factory or worked on a farm or worked in a warehouse and like, it just didn't work for them. Right. They're, they weren't, they didn't have a personality where that was, they weren't company men. Right. They wanted to like make some decisions for themselves and trucking has afforded, you know, folks from like all over the country, that independence in their work for a very long time. Right. Like there's a lot, it has certainly not been like, I don't want to valorize what trucking has been like, right. Like it has been a very difficult job for a very long time. But one thing that kind of recommends it for folks is that it has given people the ability to make decisions in their own way and to kind of like be the captain of their ship. And so you're exactly right, Wendy. There's an irony then that if you actually look at the number of rules that truckers have to deal with, and all the more so when those rules are enforced digitally, right? And when like now you've got your manager basically in the cab with you, or you have the government sort of in the cab with you because of this visibility that is afforded by the tech it hits really hard, right? And one of the things that I, there's a whole chapter in the book about resistance where I talk to folks about, you know, so do you ever like, well, like how do they try to push back, right? Like, and they have all kinds of different ways that they, they well, strategize. Security, security people can tell you that if you make bad rules, people work around them. Yeah. Well, one of the things that occurred to me is that um, I've got an ELD in my car. Do and you? It's like, yeah, I, my insurance agent is with me everywhere I oh, go. Yeah. <laughs> because the insurance company sent me a logging device that yep. that watches me while I'm driving. And I've actually had to start driving like an old man so that I can keep my rates low. But you didn't you know? have to install it, did you? You could have said, screw it, I'll spend the money. I could have, but I wasn't going to. <laughs> uh, but, but it kind of made me wonder. I mean, I was thinking about a minimal number of things that, that I'm being tracked on, but I mean, the two questions that occur to me is one, what are they being tracked on? And has that have more and more things been added over time? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So when you look at the rules, right, when you look at the, the legal requirement, it's not that much, right? Like it, you have to have somebody's location. I, I mean, truckers would still say it's a lot, but you have to have someone's location. You know, you have to know if the truck is moving so you can kind of assess whether or not, you know, the person is resting or is driving. There's a little bit of other stuff, but like, it's pretty, it's pretty much just for timekeeping. However, 
what has happened is really interesting. In the book, I talk about it as kind of, I call it surveillance interoperability. So basically the government says everybody has to buy this thing. Then as it turns out, it's actually pretty difficult. It's almost as if the government had said, everyone has to buy a phone that makes phone calls, right? Like you're gonna have a very difficult time finding a phone that makes phone calls and doesn't do a hundred other things. And ELDs are kind of like that. So very often ELD technology, like what's required is integrated or bundled with detecting someone's real-time speed, detecting if they're changing lanes without signaling, detecting if they're braking hard, detecting how much fuel they're using, which is like huge, right, in trucking. Um, and then increasingly, it's also integrated with cameras that are trained on the, often trained on the driver's face. So an outward facing and often an inward facing camera. Increasingly, those cameras are augmented by AI that looks for signs of fatigue. So it might look for something like whether someone's eyelids are starting to flutter or whether their head is starting to nod. Um, this is still a little bit bleeding edge, but you know, there's a number of new integrations that have to do with like wearable technology. So like maybe looking at somebody's heart rate or brain waves, again, to look for signs of fatigue or fitness to drive. Um, oh, there's a lot, right? Like it's becoming, and of course that stuff is not necessarily required by the law, but because the law requires a little bit, like it becomes that much easier to use those data for managers, right? The managers become very interested in those other data about people's job performance. And so one thing I talk a lot about in the book is like, how does this change truckers' relationships with their managers when these systems are in use? It just totally upends the independence they used to have. And then there's a third layer, which is just kind of commercial interest in all this data, right? So third parties, insurance companies, third parties that want to sell truckers' parking spaces, all that kind of stuff, right? Like they also benefit from having this data about where all the truckers are. Um, truckers are not necessarily benefiting, but there's a lot of other parties that are seeing a lot of value in, in ELD data. It's kind of scary, really, when you think about it. <laughs> uh, but the worst thing is that this may all go away if they bring in autonomous trucks, right? No more truck drivers, just they track the truck because the truck is the thing. So this is something I write a lot about in the book too. So I will just be honest with you. You know, I've been working on this book for a long time. And at a certain point, like about, I don't know, probably 2017, 2018, I would tell people that I studied trucking and technology and they would say exactly what you just said, John. They would say like, well, you know, autonomous trucks are coming. So no, they wouldn't say like, so who cares? But they would basically say like, well, this is all going to be a moot point soon because we won't even have human truckers. And so one chapter of the book, I like decided like, okay, if I'm going to publish this book, I need to reckon with this question, right? And where I kind of come down on it is this. I am not particularly worried about autonomous trucks without human support taking over in the short term. There have definitely been some strides, right? There's some technological progress in that area. But I still think we are really far from a tech technology that's going to be capable of driving without a human safety driver except in very specific driving environments. So like if you have a dedicated lane or something, and this, I know this is happening in Texas, right? Where they'll dedicate a couple of lanes and they'll say these are for autonomous drivers or excuse me, autonomous trucking technology. You know, in, the, in some cases like that, I think it can work. Um, but in like where I live in Ithaca, right? Or in New York City or something, or lots of other places where truckers go, like the technology is not there. And I go into a bunch of detail about some of the problems with semi-autonomous driving, how difficult it is for humans and machines to kind of work together, how it's maybe even an intractable or unsolvable problem. And so what I think is happening instead is that the, the role that AI is playing is not to replace the trucker, but instead the stuff I alluded to, right? Like the AI augmented camera on the face or a hat. Well, it's it's a support too, like, like a support, like support the driver. And what the yeah. driver's doing, like, I mean, 
I actually don't believe that autonomous vehicles are ever going to catch on. I think that they're, I think it's really hard to do a hard problem, but I can imagine building a lot of intelligence into a vehicle so that it can be, so that it can be an assist to the driver. It's sort of like right now you get cars with radar and they'll keep you from swerving, you know? Uh, And that can be really useful, right? Like, I mean, you know, I think that can operate either way and you'll find truckers on both sides of that. Some of them still don't like that stuff because it takes away some of their autonomy or they get dinged if they, you know, if the system engages too many times or something, it gets used to discipline them. But well, I in the cars, if you in the cars, if you try to trust the radar and you take your hands off the wheel, you know, sitting there like that, yeah. then you start getting these alerts and warnings say, do not take your hands off the wheel. Right, right. No. Yeah. Well, one example of this is Amazon delivery drivers, who I believe are some of the most surveilled drivers on the planet. You know, they, they and I've read lots of complaints that quite often the device is simply doesn't understand the conditions on the ground. So it criticizes their driving, but in fact, they did the safest thing in the circumstance. And your book talks about that with these truckers also, that, that uh, the, the devices are sending this steady stream of data back to the manager and the manager, you know, the, you know, where I remember in the eighties when I was doing a lot of driving, I had CB radio and I used to talk to truckers on the CB radio. And I remember this one night I was in, in the state in province of Ontario and it was a snowy and icy night. And there was somebody up, up front that was up ahead that was saying, okay, so at mile 31, you want to get into the left lane and you stay in that. And then around mile 20, you know, it was, they were giving really, really specific advice. And you could tell who was listening because they were all following the same trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was, he had found the safest bear spots and he was kind of dictating where, how to, how to navigate this. But, you know, that was great because it was a guy right there on the ground, right, you know, a, a mile or two ahead of you. But to have that kind of level of instruction coming from someone in a distant office, you know, imagine that, that that was being dictated by someone in, I don't know, Saginaw, Michigan, who, uh, you know, he doesn't actually have any knowledge of the ground conditions, but the computer tells him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you're being dinged for following, not following his directions when they're dangerous. Yeah, yeah, that definitely. That's a lot of, you know, the complaint that, that truckers have is that, you know, like the, it used to be this model, it was sometimes called the ship captain model, right? Like it, on a ship, as I understand it, on a ship, the captain gets to make all the choices about what the ship is going to do and what are the safest conditions precisely because of what you said, Wendy, right? That like, who else is going to know, right? Like who else is going to have that on the ground knowledge? And so like, that's a completely, you know, there's complete authority there. And now, you know, a lot of, a lot of companies will still like let companies all operate in different ways. And it's not that every manager, you know, uses this data in the same way. Um, and there are plenty of companies I've talked to that still say, like, yep, the trucker ultimately gets to make the choices. And I believe that's true in a lot of cases. But you get this supplemental data stream now, like what you're alluding to, that allows, equips the manager to say, like, well, but is it raining that hard where you are? Or they can say, you know what, I have like four trucks. They have more than one truck, right? So they'll say, like, I have four trucks on that highway and three of them got through. So, like, why can't you get through? Right. So it just gives them different um kind of bases or types of evidence that, like you said, are more abstract from being on the ground that lets them challenge what the trucker is telling them, right? And same goes for the trucker's body, right? Like nobody knows how tired the trucker is except the trucker. But you may have data about how many hours I drove that day or what my heart rate is or whatever. 
And you can use that to make an imputation about how tired you think I ought to be, right? And when you do that, you end up with this like very interesting conflict between worker and manager that you, as you mentioned, right, also comes up in delivery driving, where Amazon warehouse work, right? This is not just a trucker issue. I think the truckers are a really interesting case of it, but I think they're a canary in the coal mine in a lot of ways because we're seeing this in lots of different, especially low wage work contexts. If I could diverge a little bit from trucking, uh, uh, looking on your website, you've concentrated a lot on data collection and privacy. And uh, a big issue here in Austin and in other metropolitan areas is the uh, spread of license plate readers, automated mm -hmm. license plate readers that feed into big databases that are actually sold to uh, a lot of things other than the police departments. Have you looked into this? And it, it, it strikes me as being a very intrusive and not very <laughs> nice way of, you know, helping the law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I have, I have not written about automated license plate readers, but um, I have a colleague named Bryce Newell who has a really, has some really good work on that. I agree with you. I think one of the most interesting and kind of insidious aspects of what you're talking about, Scoop, is the confluence of public and private power that those represent. So like, a as I understand it, right, a lot of license plate readers are installed by like, uh, uh, what's the term for it? Like a community home, what's the, like a home ownership collective, what is that called? D uh, Homeowners Association. Homeowners Association, thank you. I don't know why I just lost the word. Homeowners associations, right? Like we want to know who's in our community or, you know, um, public housing, right? Like we'll often install those things, right? Or, or you'll see, you know, uh, commercial interests, like stores that are worried about theft, stuff like that. And then sometimes there's a direct link between those privately owned systems, right? Created by private vendors and the police. So what you end up with is sort of like this copification of everyone where now like everybody is kind of, I, I do have some work on this that's going to come out soon about kind of what we call surveillance deputization. So the way in which we sort of all become watchers of everyone, right? And we do it vis-a-vis -vis these surveillance technologies that are off the shelf, right? That we buy to protect our own families or protect our own communities or whatever it is, but which operate as giving um, the state much more visibility into areas that it wouldn't have had before. And I think ALPRs are a really good example of, of how that can function in ways that are pretty, pretty uh, insidious. Of course, all that started in London. Um, oh, did it? I don't know about that. Oh, yeah. In the early 90s, uh, the Association of British, British Science Writers used to organize trips to like research labs and, and it, scientists get us to talk to get scientists to talk to us. And one of those visits was to a place called Roke Manor, where they were very proud of this new uh, automated it's it's number plate in Britain. So it's ANPR. And hmm. they had they had just just we're just getting to the point where this this thing was working well enough that they were going to begin selling you know deploying it in some way and they were very proud of it i came across my notes from that visit just the other day handwritten and um yeah when when the london's congestion charge came in they could have done it some other way but the way they chose to do it was to put uh cameras at all the entry points to the congestion zone and those read license plates. And then mm -hmm. if you haven't paid, then it checks whether you've paid for the day. And if you haven't paid, it sends you a, fine, a notice of a fine. And uh, that's how it's been done ever since they installed it. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it started. Uh, mm -hmm. you know. 
You have Britain to thank for this wonderful idea. But of course, once it came to America, it became commercialized in a completely different way. I mean, mm -hmm. it, in Britain, we don't have, or at least we don't know that there is a private company amassing billions of li license plate reads and selling access to it to police and so forth, which is what there is in this country. I forget the name of the company, but EFF has done quite a bit of work on them. Yeah. Now in Britain, it's, you know, it's the police own, basically the police has the database. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Why, why have a middleman? Middle <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, I think license plate readers, I think, are a prime case of that. The other place where you see it, I think, is um, Amazon Ring doorbells are another good example, right? Where, you know, every like lots and lots of communities, you get your doorbell for free, right? If you sign an MOU or if a community signs an MOU to like let that feed go directly to the police, right? Which you know, just yes. exacerbates this problem. And of course you get all the attendant problems you would expect about racial profiling and um, uneven enforcement and all that stuff. There so are some landlords in Brooklyn that installed not not cam ring cameras, but like cam cam do cameras that do facial recognition and you know, they, they look to see if there's anybody in the lobby that's not, doesn't live yeah. there and that kind of thing. And the residents have really resisted this. Yeah, I heard someone talking about that recently from one of the residence groups. Um, and, you know, I mean, in many ways, these technologies, I mean, they're all of a piece in a way, right? Like they're all, many of them are like enforcing the rules, right? But oftentimes, right, like as we know, rules are unevenly enforced. I think in the context of something like public housing, right, which is where, at least where I have read more about um, like facial recognition cameras and things like that, you know, you start enforcing all the rules against everybody or you, you know, uh, one of my students was wrote something about kind of the use of these devices to track down and evict uh, public housing tenants, right, for like vi violating some set of rules. But of course, like they're rules that all of us would have violated, right? It's just that all of us are not on camera all the time, right? Or like not all of us are having our faces recognized. So that brings me back to kind of the, my original point about rules, right? And like you can come up with a sort of pretextual justification for a lot of stuff. But most rules, like most people are not following all the time, right? Like you look at the speed limit, you know, how many of us really think that driving 66 and a 65 is a violation of the rule? Like very few people, many of us do it. In fact, so few of us think that should be a violation that like if, if the cops do that, right? Or if they pull you over for a broken taillight, it's considered pretext, right? Like that can be a constitutional problem. And yet, like as we build technologies and enforce rules, we don't often build in that kind of social understanding about what rules do, right? It tends to be much more uniform enforcement. And then the groups that are subject to that enforcement are often not people who look like me, right? They're often groups that are less politically powerful. Part of the problem, I think, is that computer technology doesn't understand fuzzy very well. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, um, Bill Smart, a roboticist in Oregon State, used to talk about this at We Robot. But yeah, I came across it in other contexts too, which is that no, no matter where you set it, eventually with a computer, there is a line and it's a hard line, mm -hmm. you know, so you can sort of say to a computer, well, the temperature, you should maintain the temperature within a range of, you know, 62 to 64 or something. But it can tell the difference of, a the sensor can tell the difference of a 10,000th of a degree, something that's unnoticeable to a human. And but somewhere there is always that boundary. And mm -hmm. so, you, you know, when we when we enforce speeding rules, we can look at it and say, well, you were going 66 and you really shouldn't have been because it's a 65 mile an hour zone and that's meant to be the upper limit. But, you know, the radar equipment that I use to catch you is not accurate enough 
to yeah. be certain of standing up in court, something like that. Yeah. The computer is just going to say you're going 65.000000001 miles an hour. And therefore you are in violation of the law. And here is your $180 fine, you know? Depending yeah, on how that, the algorithms are written. Sorry, I mean, John, go ahead. I was just going to say, you could, sensibly, you would write the algorithm to uh, allow in a 65 zone, you would allow 70, maybe. Well, then your hard boundary boundary is going to be at 70, and you're still going to have 70.000001 is still going to read as you were speeding. You can never have a fuzzy boundary. There's always going to be a hard stop somewhere. And that's the problem. It's just that, you know, if you're going 70 point whatever, then you're going at least five miles over the speed limit. And I am told that the police will usually give you Mm -hmm. five, five miles per hour grace, right? Right. Because that was because the radar wasn't that accurate. Yeah. That whole thing about the five miles grace is uh, kind of an urban myth because out here in the, I live outside of Austin in a small community that is notorious as a radar trap and uh speed trap <laughs> yes and they do not give you that five miles so it's really you know depends on who it is you know and how mm-hmm. loose they are how busy they are is whether they give you a break rules are made to be broken uh, yeah right or at least that sometimes put that into the algorithm <laughs> yeah <laughs> Karen, I think more recently, I recall, I think the last time I saw you at ReRobot, you were talking about agricultural data and uh, the way that sensors and stuff were changing farming. I think it would be nice to get you to talk about that a bit because it's more recent research, isn't it, for you? Kind of. I mean, the trucking stuff has definitely been a a bigger area of focus, but you're right that I've done some work on agricultural agricultural labor as well as retail labor and just trying to understand tech and labor in kind of a more holistic way by looking at a few different contexts. So in the ag context, yeah, a lot of the inquiry was sort of similar, right, where farmers are also a group of people that, you know, at least our vision of what farm of what small farming has been involves a lot of kind of decision-making that's based on local knowledge and on experience. And you see some of the same story, right? Where you see, well, of kind of a constellation of things, right? You see more lock-in to systems, right? Which is something that's been documented a lot where farmers don't get to repair their own tractors or, you know, um, it becomes more difficult for them to tinker with systems. They get locked into IP related to the seeds that they're using that, you know, there's tons and tons of data collected about what they're planting, what their yield is, right? And, and all of that data is then accruing to parties that are not them, right? But are basic, basically a lot of the story is that um, farm equipment companies are sort of becoming data analytics companies in much the same way that a lot of various hardware com- car companies, you could probably say the same thing, right? Where more and more of their profit and interest is in analyzing the data from, from people that are buying their products. And so it's, it becomes an interesting question, like what do you do with that? Um, one of the approaches that, people sometimes turn to is like data ownership strategies, right? Saying like, well, it's my farm, it's my data, I can delete it anytime, whatever, right? Like I get to sign an agreement about it. You know, I think we know, and I know I've seen you at enough meetings where this has been discussed, Wendy, that I know that this is something you've thought a lot about too, that strategies that rely on individuals to kind of opt out of an arrangement are almost always going to be imperfect 
or incomplete just because, you know, those aren't really policy solutions to kind of depend on people to, to do those things. Um, so, so I've written some about that in the retail context. It's like kind of a, a related or similar story, right? I've looked at kind of um, how it is that store employees are affected by technologies that are used to monitor customers in this case. So, you know, if you look at how, if you have trackers in a brick and mortar store that are tracking how many customers are in line, for example, right? How those data are used to then control workers in different ways, maybe by changing their scheduling algorithms so that they, you know, come in for shorter periods of the day, for example, right? Like only when there's a long line or they're put on call, right? Like, in, you know, we often think about doctors as being on call, but, you know, up until pretty recently, Starbucks workers or McDonald's workers could be on call where they weren't getting paid anything, but when the algorithm told them to, cl to clock in, they would clock in. Um, so all of the kind of, I think the common theme of a lot of, a lot of this work is looking at ways in which economic power and, you know, to some extent, political power gets removed from, you know, often low wage workers or workers who are kind of at the, at, certainly at a power differential from managers um, by virtue of these technologies that centralize knowledge or remove the value of some of the knowledge that folks have in their heads. So it's not that it's the same old story, right? Like I think each sector you get kind of different twists based on the technologies that are being used and the political economy of those contexts. But I think you do see enough common themes that it tells us some stuff about just tech and labor and how they interact even across different, different occupations. I'm gonna set up a monitor for scoop. <laughs> what are you gonna do, put a, put a camera in his house? I could do that. I could do Not that. his knowledge? I have plenty of cameras in my house already. Yeah, there <laughs> you go. A, I'm in my, my studio, which is, I have like four different cameras that I could point at this <laughs> spot. I was just, I'm writing something for a, for a project that involves a certain amount of future speculation about the future. And one of the horrendous ideas that occurred to me was the notion that British police could compel everyone in the country to connect every camera they had well, with a network connection to a giant, a giant network hub that would turn the hundreds of millions of cameras, you know, phone cameras, cameras inside and outside cars, uh, ring cameras, uh, you know, body worn cameras that police had anything into this giant all seeing surveillance network. And uh, my prediction is that it would entirely fail to cap. cap well, the NSA has that already. So. <laughs> Um. You know, in all this, I kept thinking about, do you remember Steven Spielberg's first movie? I think it was the first movie he ever made. It was made for television and it was called Duel. Yep. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I and do. I was, it's mentioned in my book. Gosh, that could never happen <laughs> now because they would catch that guy, presumably. Or yep. they would look at it and say, "Man, that trucker's moving on. That's great." Yeah. What, what was the what was the plot What was the plot point that you're talking about? It had Dennis Weaver as a guy who was just like driving on the highway, and for whatever reason, this trucker starts following him and then chasing him and then menacing him, and it goes on and on for like I mean, the whole movie is just this chase you know, the trucker chasing the poor guy in his car. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't remember, I think at the end, the guy finally managed to like run the trucker off the road or something. 
So what uh, did he use footage from the O.J. Simpson car chase? <laughs> this was a much more uh, kinetic car chase than the O.J. Simpson thing, I think. But it's no, I mean, the fact that, you know, Steven Spielberg's first movie is dual. Um, Stephen King had an, I don't know if it was his first movie, but one of his early movies was Maximum Overdrive, which is about, I don't know if you've I, seen Maximum Overdrive. I was just about to ask that. Yeah, Maximum Overdrive is classic for, you know, the classic. truck trying to kill me. Yep, yep. And like, I actually, like I mentioned both of those movies in my book, in part because I think one thing that, you know, we, we talked a little bit about autonomous vehicles. One thing that I think shouldn't be discounted is the level of public discomfort with autonomous vehicles and autonomous trucks in particular, like the fact that you have literal horror movies about runaway trucks, right? An 80 or 100,000 pound vehicle chasing you down the highway. It's a movie, right? But people yeah. have serious security concerns about you know, how secure are these systems? How do we know they're not gonna go awry or couldn't be taken over by bad actors? You know, there's like serious public, I mean, you know, when people pilot like self-driving taxis around in California or Arizona, people throw rocks at them, right? Like people are not excited to have those on their streets. And I think like that's not to be discounted, right? Like it's not to say those things will never happen, but they have to reckon with like a pretty serious public resistance to the idea of-, of Did you see the bonkers thing going on in San Francisco where they were uh, stopping autonomous vehicles from going anywhere by putting traffic cones on the hoods? I didn't. They're just totally confused. Can you confuse the car? So they just ground to a halt. Yeah, the autonomous uh, taxis have a bad reputation in a number of cities because they'll all suddenly, for no discernible reason, just all gather in the same street and cause a massive traffic jam. That's pa happened in Austin and in San Francisco, where really? yeah, like a dozen autonomous taxis just sitting there blinking and not moving. A flock of taxis. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think we could do better than flock. I mean, a parliament of owls has real has real class. So we need we need something similar for autonomous taxis that a, a is much more taxis. interesting. A murder of taxis. Yeah, I was just thinking that. A murder of taxis. <laughs> the other the other problem that San Francisco has reported is is that the cars are in the wrong place. They don't get out of the way of ambulances. Uh, somebody died, I think, last week because an ambulance hmm. couldn't reach them or something. That's definitely a, a, a problem that is getting worse. I mean, I, I tend to think that autonomous vehicles are just too hard a problem for any immediate solution, that there's just always going to be some variable or edge case that one of the predictions I, I was writing a paper about the future of automation more than 10 years ago, so it would have been about sort of now. But <laughs> one, of, one of the things that one of the people I talked to suggested was was not so much that the cars wouldn't be safer, but that when you had a pileup, it would be, you know, a hundred, you would have hundred car pileups instead of, you know, just a couple of cars that, that when something went wrong, it would go something wrong on a much grander scale. It would domino in other words. Yeah. Yeah. That's, mm -hmm. that's a scary thought. Mm -hmm. I just to change the subject slightly, Karen, I'm just wondering what you're working on now. I mean, are you still thinking about trucks or do you have a, a whole different project going? I sort of can't ever stop thinking about trucks at this point. <laughs> like I still read a lot of the trucker media and I'm, you know, I've gotten to know the community pretty well. So I'm still thinking about it in part because some of these things just like perpetually, like the issues we were talking about, truckers are a really interesting area to study because, you know, they're dealing with all of this stuff. They deal with speed limiters and they deal with autonomous vehicles and all these questions about rules. 
but right now I'm working on, um, I'm writing a textbook actually with a, a collaborator about, it's called Choices and Consequences in Computing. And we teach this really large, it's a 750 person class here at Cornell um, of, it's a mix of folks from computer science and from humanities and social sciences and from all across campus. And the goal is to try to like get people to recognize that when you build technologies, you have to be attentive to the social and ethical consequences thereof. And so you have to know something about the fourth amendment or you have to know something about the history of discrimination in the United States in order to build those systems effectively and vice versa, right? That knowing something about the technical aspects of these systems helps you better think about what their social impacts will be. So working on that now, it should be done hopefully um, early next year. And then I'm gonna turn back to some other questions, kind of more, more along the lines of the rules stuff we we're talking about, right? About the, the, actually the point that you guys brought up about like, well, if, if you only get a ticket, if you're driving 70 and a 65, then is the rule 65 or is the rule 70? I think are actually really important questions to reckon with because as we start, you know, integrating autonomous systems into our rules, right, into like the, the context in which we have a lot of rules, we have to know the answer to that, right? Um, there was an interesting case last year where Tesla was allowing its cars to do rolling stops. We all do rolling stops all the time, right? Lots of people do rolling stops in certain contexts, yeah. but the regulator NHTSA said like, absolutely not, you're not, that breaks the law. And there's an interesting question there, I think about like, well, why does it break the law when it's automated, but it doesn't break the law? You know, when I set my cruise control to drive 66, that's not a technical problem, right? We put that on me. But when the machine is doing it, we say that that's, that's problematic. So I think there are interesting questions about agency and autonomy around. Do you think that's also a question about scale? Like one mean? of the things we talk a lot about is the different scale makes. There was a paper, there was actually a paper on it in at we, we Robot this year um, that, you know, it's the difference between random people doing it, you mm. know, sort of scattered dots versus everyone doing it. I mean, it's, you know, it's like we run the train service from London to Manchester on the basis that the entire population is not going to want to all board the same train yeah. to Manchester. Yeah. You know, th there's this assumption that it's only going to be X percent and that, yeah. that that's what we build toward. But if you have autonomous vehicles that are all told it's okay to go 70 in a 65 mile an hour zone, then you have raised the speed limit for the entire road in a way that you don't when you don't arrest one person because they're going five miles over the limit. Yeah, that's a really good point. I have not thought about it that way. I know I've read some stuff about um, kind of the idea of monoculture, right? If we're all drawing, right. and a lot of people have written about this, right? If people are drawing from the same algorithm for hiring, you know, for example, right? Like everybody's using the same system or we're all using the same models to drive, you know, chat GPT or something. What does that mean about the diversity that we otherwise would get? Because as you point out, right, we're all drawing from different different sources for decision-making. But this is maybe like a good example of another effect of that kind of, that kind of system when things happen at scale. You know, automation is not done well here in Texas for our tollways. We have all these toll roads and they uh, don't have people there collecting the tolls. It's all done by cameras that uh, link to their automation system. And mm -hmm. they've been notorious for not recognizing that someone has paid or not paid. And people get these at past due bills of $10,000 or something. It's, it happens years after, after the fact. And they've been trying to wrestle with this in Texas for years and still haven't gotten it uh, perfect. I don't think. They well, they, they, they glitched it. They glitched it. They changed their systems 
and people needed to know to log in and move to a different system and didn't do it. So they were no longer having their like accounts debited properly and the bills were piling up and they didn't know it. And apparently they weren't doing a good job of sending them a notification that they owed some money. So it got pretty intense there for a while. And a lot of people were uh, very upset about it. Yeah, they have an actual balkanization of tollways because there's not just one agency, there's several of them and they don't really communicate with each other. Indeed. Uh, hopefully they will fix that just like they fix everything right in texas especially one of the things that i i mean in talking about rules we're living in a country now where there are a lot of people who don't really like rules and have pretty much decided they're just going to ignore them and it's coming from the top you know they're sovereign cities. They're sovereign citizens, John. The rules don't apply to them. Exactly. Or Elon Musk. Uh, I don't know how that, I mean, that's maybe a monkey wrench tossed into the whole question about rules and, and how rules should be made and how rules should be followed. If you have yeah. people who just decide they're going to follow whatever rules they want to and ignore others. Mm -hmm. I, I've thought about that a lot. I've thought about how, um, I mean, obviously, the whole masking thing was uh, a huge controversy, and there was it, there was a, a crisis that continues to today in public health mm -hmm. because public health lost its credibility. Mm -hmm. So, what happens to systems of rules when? The rulemaking authorities have no more authority when they they have no credibility and when people just take it upon themselves to ignore the rules. Yeah, I don't know. You probably don't address that, but I don't get that quite that broad in in the book. But but I agree, right? That you know, um, in I think it's always been the case that whenever you have we have a lot of rules that don't mean anything, and then some rules that really do mean something, and then some rules that we enforce for some people but not others, and some rules that you know, we want to maybe allow differential enforcement of rules in some cases, right? If somebody's on their way to the hospital with their sick kid, maybe we like are okay with not ticketing that person for speeding. But we know that discretion is also really harmful, right? In a lot of contexts where enforcement is biased or something. So, you know, I think for me, the bottom line, what I want to get into in my work next is trying to like, really kind of bring some order to that kind of mess of when are, when, are, when do we mean the rules and when don't we? Right. And then, and I think if we have a more sophisticated understanding of that, it maybe helps us a little bit with what you're talking about, John, with like, you know, if you just have a bunch of rules and nobody trusts them or like understands the basis on which they're promulgated or they don't seem like they're getting applied evenly, then our hopes for legitimacy of governance, I think, are really, are really slim. And so, absolutely. Yeah. I can think of a bit of a kink in the thing you just offered as, as a possible exception to the rule that somebody's speeding to get to the hospital because they have a sick child or someone who's been terribly injured or whatever, mm -hmm. they can still by speeding and just driving through anxiety, they could still cause a terrible accident. Sure. Absolutely. So, so should there really be an exception for them? It's like the question about how, how much of an exception do you make for ambulances? Mm -hmm. You know, there's kind of supposed to be an exception for ambulances, but I, um, I understand, I, I understand that ambulances are still required 
to be very attentive to the traffic conditions, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of how urgent it is for them to get where they're going, because mm -hmm. they could, you know, they could foul somebody down. There's a significant difference there, though, John, which is that ambulance drivers are professionals and the average car driver is not. <laughs> this yeah, is the same yeah, thing absolutely. with truckers. They are, they are professional drivers. They have skill that, you know, someone like me driving along next to them and chatting with them on CB radio should not be presumed to have, you know. And Karen, have you thought about driving a truck? <laughs> <laughs> I have not. I don't have my CDL. Um, I've been in several trucks, like in the course of doing the research. And it was actually, it was a question I got a lot is like, so did you ever drive a truck? There's one other or two other researchers who, sociologists who've studied trucking that did it by going out and getting their CDLs and like reporting on life over the road, which is really cool. Those books are great. The researchers are named Steve Vaselli and Anne Belay, and I love their both of their books. My approach was a little different in part because I had like a little kid at home and you know there were yeah. things about my life that made becoming a trucker not part of part of the story and I tried to augment what I think what I could I could have learned a, a lot from doing that I tried to instead augment it with breath right so I tried to talk to lots and lots of people including folks who were not in trucking but kind of dealt a lot with trucking or sold technology in trucking or were regulators in trucking something like that and I think I could that was just the choice right was to kind of go broad instead of as deep as I'll hear some of those recordings. Yeah. But actually, we have, you know, we're at the end of our hour, and I can't believe we're at the end of the hour. I could well, it was talking. a pleasure getting to talk with you all, and thanks so much for having me on. Well, thanks for coming. This was great, and I uh, hope you'll come back sometime, and uh, especially after your textbook is released, and you can come and lay down the rules for us. <laughs> we need you. You can stay in touch with Plutopia at plutopia.io. On Facebook, look for at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.